Curiosity editor Alexandra Solomon. This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Earlier this month, President Joe Biden announced a COVID-19 vaccine mandate. People working for the federal government, healthcare workers, and... All employers with 100 or more employees that together employ over 80 million workers. He also explained why he believed this move is necessary. This is not about freedom or personal choice. It's about protecting yourself and those around you. And here in Chicago, Mayor Lori Lightfoot announced that city employees would need to get vaccinated. The requirement applies to more than 30,000 city workers who now have until October 15th to be fully vaccinated. And a slew of large corporations and small businesses have also issued a requirement that employees get the vaccine. It's not just Disney. You've got big companies like Walmart and Facebook that are saying the same thing. One listener has been following the rollout of these pandemic-related mandates, and she's noticed they all include something called a religious exemption. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act allows employees to refuse the vaccine over sincerely held religious beliefs. She didn't want her name used for this story because vaccines are a contentious subject in her family. She's been vaccinated for COVID-19, but some members of her family don't want to get vaccinated. And one relative got a religious exemption when it was time to vaccinate her kids for school. So she wanted to know more about how these religious exemptions work, the history behind them, and whether they make a difference when it comes to how many people get vaccinated. We're going to tackle those questions next. It's not uh, my job as a public health professional to say that, you know, someone's belief in Jesus or Muhammad is more valid than their following of L. Ron Hubbard. That's right after the break. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark. Learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. So we got all these questions about religious exemptions to vaccines, and we're going to try to answer them all for you on today's episode. To help us out, we turn to reporter Andrew Merriweather. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Alex. So, Andrew, what exactly is a religious exemption? Sure. So religious exemptions are clauses that are typically added to a mandate or the statute of a law or even something that you might find in an employee guidebook. And essentially what it does is it allows for an individual to opt out of a requirement, say for a vaccine, based on sincerely held religious beliefs. And so the first thing to understand about this is there is no federal law that gives consistency to how these religious exemptions work. It really varies from state to state and from organization to organization. Another thing to understand about these exemptions, which was pointed out to me by several legal scholars, including Douglas Laycock at the University of Virginia, 
is that the language around sincerity is usually very broad. I mean, people push the religious exemption because it's very hard to investigate their sincerity. How do you decide what someone really believes in their heart of hearts about religion? So, Andrew, yeah, if you can't sort of know what is, as your scholar pointed out, in someone's heart, how do these exemptions actually work on a practical level? So let me use Chicago here as an example. If you're a parent and you're sending your kid to CPS and you want to apply for a religious exemption, what you have to do is submit the specific form where you're showing which vaccines you're opposing and what the religious basis is for opposing that vaccine. And it has to be signed by a licensed physician. Now, if you're a teacher, and we're talking about the COVID-19 vaccine here in particular, you actually have to do additional paperwork where you have to submit a letter that is authorized by a faith leader of the religion that you claim to adhere to or be devoted to. Okay, so it sounds like there's this patchwork of laws that change from state to state and that even within, for example, Chicago public schools, there's two different processes, whether you're looking at kids or teachers. So what do religious leaders and faith leaders have to say about vaccinations and religious exemptions? So over the last month, we've actually seen a lot of public messages from prominent religious leaders across all faiths advocating for vaccines. A little bit by what's happening in your community today. Uh, our biggest task right now is trying to get uh, all of uh, our citizens uh, to take advantage of the vaccine. We've been on a journey with my own church trying to convince our members, don't throw away your shot. So here in Chicago, for example, the archdiocese uh, instructed their clergy not to even accept religious exemption submissions. Cardinal Supich says the Catholic Church supports the vaccine and that it promotes the common good. Cardinal Blaise Supich. But even nationally, we've seen the Pope, you know, did a PSA saying that getting vaccinated would be an act of love. It's an act of love. Amor a uno mismo, amor a los familiares y amigos, amor a todos los pueblos. We've seen imams showing videos of themselves getting vaccinated. By taking the vaccine, you actually get reward by God Almighty for preventing harm happen to others. And just recently, there was a collection of Orthodox rabbis, you know, emphasizing that it's incredibly important for people to get a vaccine. With all the data that has emerged, we clearly see just how safe and effective the vaccines are across populations, including the elderly. Now, in addition to these videos that have been coming out, there's research showing that scholars from across all faiths don't think that there's a religious basis for objecting to a vaccine. Hmm. I spoke with Ibu Patel at the Interfaith Youth Corps, a nonprofit that's been doing research on vaccine acceptance in different faith communities, and he affirmed the same thing. You will find that clergy and scholars alike are saying pretty consistently that there is nothing substantive in their religion that would prevent their adherence from taking a vaccine. Not only do scholars say there's no religious basis for objecting to a vaccine, it actually might be more adherent to the principles of their religion to get vaccinated. In fact, evangelical institutions, from summer camps to schools to ministries, have mandated vaccines for everything uh, from polio to measles. So this is not new, and it is actually viewed as a religious act to get vaccinated because you are loving your neighbor and maintaining your own health. Of course, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, right, in Christian language, and Muslims and Jews would view the body quite similarly. So all these faith leaders have come out 
in favor of vaccines. It's, you know, there's this long tradition of religious leaders promoting vaccines. How do we even get these religious exemptions then in the first place? What I discovered is that there's a very long history of vaccine mandates and also an equally long history of people opposing them. But what's interesting is that they don't begin as religious objections. So for the most part, people are referring to other constitutional rights uh, when they're trying to get an exemption to a vaccine. So if we go back to, say, the 19th century, when we see the first emergence of vaccine mandates for something like smallpox, people are actually using different constitutional rights as a way of opposing uh, these mandates. For example, people will refer to the 14th Amendment, saying that it's an infringement of their life and liberty to have to get this, you know, undue medical procedure. Or even in, uh, you know, the mid-19th century, we see the emergence of something called the Conscientious Clause, uh, which actually comes from the United Kingdom. And that's just a general belief exemption. Like, I don't think that this thing is safe, and I don't think I should have to get it. So it's not even really till the 20th century that we start to see people using religion as a basis for opposing a vaccine. And it doesn't even become law until 1939 in North Carolina when they allow parents to apply for a religious exemption to not have their child receive the diphtheria vaccine. But a lot of the public health experts that I talked to, including Dr. Sato Mayer at Yale University, said that we didn't start to see mandates or religious exemptions really pick up steam until the 1950s and 60s. And during that period, there was a serious outbreak of polio and measles. And what we see in response to that, gradually states started implementing these mandates uh, around school entry, that you can't attend school if you are unvaccinated, meaning you know, if you're a kid and your parents don't get you vaccinated. And these laws started in late 60s, and then most states uh, passed all these laws, and then eventually by early 80s, all states has vaccination mandates uh, in one form or another. So something else that was pointed out to me by legal scholar Dorit Rice was that around the same time that you're seeing the emergence of vaccine mandates in schools, the Civil Rights Act also passes in 1964. And what that does is it protects employees from discrimination based on religion. So Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits employers from discriminating on a number of categories, including religion. And that has been interpreted to mean that if an employee has a sincere religious objection to a workplace rule, the employer has to accommodate them unless it's an undue burden. And so what you see is that employers start including this language around religious exemption for various policies that they're creating for their employees. So, Andrew, you get more and more states enacting laws that require that kids get vaccinated in order to attend school. At the same time, you have these religious exemptions being tacked on to all these laws, because with the Civil Rights Act, you've got this broad protection for religious freedom. Right. And so all these things together end up informing why states included religious exemptions to vaccines for the next several decades. That is, until things start to break down. Eventually, we start seeing outbreaks again. And this forces several states to reassess whether... These exemptions are pushing down vaccination rates. That's next. Stay with us. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark. Learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. 
Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org slash events. So, Andrew, before the break, we were talking about how vaccine policy evolved. And this included, you know, mandates around the country for things like kids attending school. And at the same time, you had most states including a religious exemption to these vaccines. So what's the result of the inclusion of these religious exemptions? It's really not a problem for the most part. A very small minority of people are choosing to take advantage of the religious exemption. And so uh, herd immunity is largely achieved. uh, And we really see the eradication of these diseases that we were having outbreaks of in the early part of the 20th century. But things start to change around the late 90s. What happens then? So in 1998, there's this paper that's published by British physician Andrew Wakefield in a fairly prestigious journal called The Lancet. And in this study, Wakefield erroneously links the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, better known as the MMR vaccine, to children developing autism. Right. That was a really big story. It made a lot of news. It was also pretty quickly debunked. If I recall, The Lancet even retracted the study and and Wakefield lost his license. Disgraced and discredited, the doctor who convinced thousands of parents to skip vital vaccinations for their children. Andrew Wakefield's already been stripped of his medical license. Now he's been called a fraud. So what happened? So we really don't see the repercussions of this paper until like 15 years later, when in 2015, there's this measles outbreak in California. An outbreak of measles that started at Disneyland has now infected close to 70 people across the U.S. West Coast. And it comes to light that there's been a significant increase in parents exempting their kids from the MMR vaccine. And lawmakers believe that it's because they're using religious exemption as a loophole. So when they figure out this is being used as a loophole, what'd they do about it? Yeah. So that same year in 2015, lawmakers swiftly passed legislation to remove religious exemption from their school codes. And that actually inspires several states to follow suit, including here in Illinois. So back in February of 2020, former state senator Heather Staines also proposed similar legislation to remove religious exemptions from the Illinois school codes. There have been some concerns um, about the fact that the number of kids that was unvaccinated was growing in Illinois. And the year before the pandemic happened, we'd been seeing real outbreaks of measles in particular in a number of different places around the United States. And we had a number of places, school districts here in Illinois, that had very high uh, unvaccinated rates where they did not have herd immunity. And what Senator Staines and people at the Department of Public Health thought was that because Illinois didn't have a personal belief exemption, people were going to and exploiting the religious exemption clause in our school codes. What the research had shown sort of that was done more nationally, that the states that did not have a personal belief exemption, that's where you saw the rise in the religious belief so that it was probably not necessarily religiously based, but uh, more just your personal beliefs. But Senator Staines is no longer in office, and currently the bill does not have a sponsor. So it's unclear how the bill is going to move forward at this point. 
Is this a trend, states passing legislation to remove religious exemptions altogether? Yeah, this is a question that I also had and something that I posed to all of our experts that we talked to for this story. And unfortunately, all of them pretty much say the same thing, which is it's too early to tell. It's hard to say, but it's not a very strong or rapid trend if it's a trend. California was the first to repeal. They had that big measles outbreak. And there was a big measles outbreak in Philadelphia about the same time. And, you know, I thought the publicity around those incidents would trigger a wave of repeals, but it's been very slow. What Laycock and others have pointed out is that while states might be tempted to remove religious exemptions, there's an anti-vax movement that is really vocal and is growing. The anti-vaxxers are very intense. I believe in in a patient and a parent's right to make a choice for their own child. It is bothering me that the state is telling me what to do for my kids. If you're a legislator and you're being lobbied by the anti-vaxxers, you may figure they'll vote single issue on this. They'll vote against me no matter what else I do. But all the normal people who accept medical advice and get their vaccinations, they have a lot of issues they care about. And they're not going to vote for me single issue just because I repealed this. So you you may think it's political risky to repeal the vaccination exemption. Something that I actually found more interesting was that a number of the experts that I talked to actually thought that getting rid of religious exemptions might not be the best idea if you're trying to maximize the number of people who get vaccinated. So remember, we talked to Dr. Omer, who's the physician and public health scholar, and he and a team of researchers actually looked at California as a case study. And so they looked to see, okay, what happened when California got rid of their religious exemption laws? Like, did they see any change? And what they found was that the noncompliance rate, in other words, the number of people who weren't getting vaccinated, actually stayed basically the same. What happened was there was this cottage industry of people giving medical exemptions that sprouted of some certain sort of not so sincere providers. But that was a small fraction. Okay, so it didn't matter that they got rid of one type of exemption, the religious exemption. People just looked for other ways to get around the rules. Exactly. And so what Dr. Omer and other public health experts have said is that they actually think the solution to this problem might be more nuanced. So instead of trying to just squash any loophole that might exist in a law, he thinks that we should just have higher expectations for receiving an exemption. What differentiates effective mandates versus non-effective mandates is how easy it is to opt out in terms of procedures. If you make it too easy to opt out, then a ton of people opt out, and and so the, the, the mandate is not that potent and effective. But if you make it too hard, if you shut down the pressure valve, the backlash is so much that you are going after these stragglers, like sort of these, this last mile and that effort, and then people find loopholes. Yeah, that sounds like a difficult position for lawmakers to be in. And in addition to that, these same experts, including folks like Dorit Rice, think that we can actually just get rid of religion altogether when making these exemption rules. If you're interested in offering an exemption, whether because you believe that people with sincere uh, religious or philosophical position shouldn't be made to vaccinate or because you're worried about litigation, you don't have to make it rely on religion. You can say Here's a personal choice exemption, but to get it, you have to jump through these hoops and you can make the hoops fairly demanding. That would limit the exemption to the people who are really committed to not vaccinating, hopefully, and uh, it would do away with the need to lie and shoehorn the argument into 
religion. And she has really specific examples of what some of those hoops could look like. So it could be something like a multi-day course that you have to take and, and a certificate that you know, shows that you've understood the information that was given to you and also having to file very thorough paperwork in order to receive an exemption. So it's going to be really interesting to see as the pandemic continues and we start to see more and more mandates coming down, how policymakers strike a balance between having exemptions so that they can reduce the backlash without making something that's easily exploitable and thwarts their public health goals. Well, Andrew, really, really interesting. Thanks so much for all this great reporting. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks again to Andrew Merriweather for that reporting. Don't forget this podcast runs on your questions. Send them our way at wbez.org slash curiouscity. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation and produced by Joe Dassault and Jason Mark. Maggie Civit is our digital and engagement producer, and Sophia Lowe is our intern. I'm Alexandra Solomon. See you next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.